Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But tonight's message is titled, Humility, God's Cure for an Unhealthy Heart. And you may be thinking, "Uh uh-oh, how do I get to the door? I don't want to talk about humility, although I probably will pick up the tape and hand it to my spouse or somebody at work that really needs it. But I tell you what, we as human beings, if we need anything, we need a good dose of reality. And a good dose of humility is always reality for us. The The question is, will it either be forced upon us being humbled or we actually be preemptive and humble ourselves before God? Well, I know that I can't go throughout a service without mentioning this, so I'll go ahead and get it out of the way at the beginning. As you know, I hail from the great state of Texas. Yes. Well, don't get too excited about it. They don't have any good green chili, so that's why I left. Anyway. But there's a famous songwriter, and I know all of you guys on the floor are going to say, I've never heard of this person, but some of you toward the back will know this. But there's a famous songwriter from my part of the world by the name of Mac Davis. You'll remember him? He sort of had that white guy fro that was really popular and wrote really corny songs. Well, this is one of them. The title of the song is, Oh Lord, It's Hard to Be Humble. He says, Oh Lord, It's Hard to Be Humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror because I keep getting better looking every day. To know me is to love me. I must be a wonderful man. Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble, but I'm doing the best that I can. I used to have a girlfriend, but I guess she couldn't compete with all those other fans who were clamoring at my feet. Well, I probably find me another, but I guess they're all in awe of me. Who cares? I never get lonesome because I treasure my own company. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking each day. To know me is to love me. I must be a wonderful man. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble, but I'm doing the best that I can. I guess you say I'm a loner, a cowboy outlaw, tough and proud. Well, I could have lots of friends if I wanted, but then I wouldn't stand out from the crowd. Some folks say that I'm egotistical. Well, I don't even know what that means. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking each day. Well, he says it's hard to be humble, but we know what he means. He is completely 100% consumed with himself. And we, being Christians, of course, would never say that we are completely consumed with ourselves. However, whenever we hear the word humble, two or three different reactions happen in our mind. In fact, when I say the word humble, what mental images come into your mind. Do you think of the word peaceful? Maybe like this. Or nice. Or soft. I don't know. How do you do a soft? I I just (laughs) threw that one in. Tender. Maybe this one was tender. Or maybe when you think of humble, you think of small or weak or powerless gentle or pious. You all have all of these words go through your mind, but usually you don't think of someone who is strong and powerful. Webster's dictionary defines it this way. It says, not proud or haughty, not arrogant or assertive. Secondly, it's reflecting, expressing, or offered in a spirit of deference or submission. It's ranking low in hierarchy or scale insignificant or unpretentious, not costly or luxurious. In another way, as I mentioned earlier, it's not only a state of being, but it's a way that we relate to others in humbling them or being humbled 
ourselves. You can either humble yourself or be humble. Look with me at James 4, verse 6. James 4, verse 6, God drives or draws a line in the sand. And this passage lets us know two things about God. Let's read. He gives more grace. He gives more grace, therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Two things we notice in this passage. First of all, God resists the proud. Secondly, he gives grace to the humble. Interesting word that's used here for resist. Resist in this particular passage is a Greek word that simply means, it's a military term, that means to be ready for battle or making war. That's a strong phrase. I mean, when you think of someone resisting, it's not that big a deal. You're kind of putting up your hands to their advances. But God in this passage, we find out, desires and resists the proud in such a way that he makes war with the proud. The word proud here is a combination of two Greek words. The first word means above, and the second word means to appear or manifest. And the idea is that of an arrogantly... Uh, a person who acts arrogantly, supposing themselves above other people. So God makes war with those who are in a position to believe that they are above and greater than people around them. It's one who shows themselves to be greater than everyone else. I love the words of Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. He says this, Six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. Notice that the things that he hates, the first on the list is a proud look. Now, question for us. As I see the looks on your faces. There's a lot of, what? Why would scripture state that God is at war with anybody? I mean, especially the proud. Wouldn't God have something good to say about the person that's proud? I mean, most of us would think of being prideful or pride in something as, as something to be desired. Say, you do a good job at work or people know that you have a good reputation around town for uh, working hard and you can take pride in your work. That is something completely different. That's a misuse of the word and pride here. We have too many meanings in our language for the word pride. Just like love. You can say, I love my family. And you can say, I love my iPod. Well, you probably love your iPod even more. (laughs) But that's a whole other story. But there's many uses. And we use the word pride for uh, self-respect and and worth. That's not what it's talking about here. This is someone who over-exaggerates their worth in this world. I love what one person said. He said, pride is the only disease that makes everybody sick but the one who has it. That's true, isn't it? A prideful person is hard to live with. I know. I'm told that all the time. (laughs) Anyway, that's personal. This is a public event. Now, pride can be dangerous. I heard a story, an old farm story, of three good friends. Now, I don't know how true this is, but I'll go ahead and tell it anyway. There were two ducks and a frog. And interestingly enough, they became friends at the pond that they hung out in. They had a great time splashing around together, quacking and croaking and and raising a ruckus throughout the pond. But... The hot summer sun began to appear and the pond began to dry up. Well, that's easy for the ducks. What do they do? They flap their wings, they get a little uh, motion, and they head out and find another pond. But the frog was getting stuck in the mud and told his buddies, Hey, what are you going to do with me? So they thought and they thought and they thought, and finally the the frog had a plan. 
He said, what we'll do, guys, is we'll get a stick and we'll put one end of the stick in your mouth, the other end of the stick in your mouth, and I'll grab on with my mouth in the middle and we'll take off and we'll go to another pond. So they found a perfect stick. They put it in their mouths and they started flapping the wings and going fast. And the frog was sort of flapping and skipping along the water. And they finally got up enough speed and their eyes were getting really big. They thought, wow, we're really doing it. Well, the farmer saw this and they were high up in the air and he, he realized what it was and he knew that they were friends. And this is what he said. He said, well, isn't that a clever idea? I wonder which one of you thought of it. And the frog said, I did. Pride can be dangerous. You get it? He, you know, he, okay, fine, whatever. I don't know. I, I still have young kids. I read too many stories like that. It can be dangerous to us, although there is something inside of us that would so love to take credit for everything good that ever comes around us. In fact, I saw a, a test online, a humility test, and I was going through it, and I thought this is interesting, and then I got down a little bit further, and there was something inappropriate, so don't go there. Uh, but, it, you know, one of the questions that they asked were, what would you do if you got credit for something that someone else did? Would you tell everyone the truth and correct the mistake. Well, it's hard. But not only that, but pride causes us to lose perspective. There's a story of a, of a gal by the name of Mary. Mary was a very faithful church attender. She was um, always here. Oh, not here. Sorry, this is a different church. <laughs> was always in church, always attended. But, you know, she prided herself in the way that she looked. Well, one day she was so perplexed about an issue, she called for a meeting with the pastor. And so she went into the pastor's office and she said, Pastor, I'm having a hard time. Well, he said, well, tell me your problem. Well, she said, you know, every week I come to church and I look around and I notice that, well, I'm the best looking woman in the church. And I'm having a hard time not judging them for their appearance. It's tough being the best-looking woman in the church. How do you help me through this pride? And I love his response. He said, Mary, this is not a sin. This is just a mistake. Okay, fine. You get it? Okay, fine. I'm not going to tell any more jokes tonight. Forget it. Don't clap. That's crude. But we lose perspective, don't we? And pride is a great agent to help us do that. Pride, this pride, causes us to view life through a diseased mind and see things through a diseased heart. Pride that's spoken of in this passage stems from a deep internal rebellion against God. It's not so flippant. It's not so surface. This comes as a deep rebellion against the living God. Keep your finger here and turn with me over to Isaiah chapter 14. The prime example of this is that old, old heathen, the devil. He gives us the first example. Isaiah 14, picking up in verse 12, we read these words. How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations? For you have said in your hearts, I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the Noah. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will be like the most high. Why is God at war with such pride? Because number one. God's glory, you can write this down, God's glory belongs to himself alone, not to be shared with anyone else. Isaiah 42.8 says this, 
I am the Lord. That is my name. And my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. I love what he says in Psalm 57, verse 5. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. And in First Chronicles, verse 16, chapter 16, verse 24, it says, Declare his glory among the nations, his wonders among all peoples. Note what we are to learn in this passage. God creates war with such pride because number one, and we've got to get this straight, my friends, we were created to be God-centered, not self-centered. Where do you think they came up with that term self-centered? It's ugly. Nobody likes it. It causes problems everywhere self-centeredness is found. But as we read in Scripture, as we realize our proper position in the world, we realize that we as creatures of the living God were made to worship and to glorify Him alone, period. And I know as shocking as that may seem to a society that is very pragmatic, even, a, even religiously, we're very pragmatic in the sense that we're constantly asking the question, what's in it for me? Or God, why don't you answer my prayer? Why don't you do something for me? Hey, our focus, our life is to be centered upon this great God. Not because we invented that, because that is the purpose that he has laid out for us. All right. First of all, it's because God's big glory belongs to himself. But secondly, pride is destructive. You may ask how or, or why. I'm glad you ask. Back in James chapter 4, you can turn there. We notice four things about pride. Pride is selfish. It's hostile to God. It's judgmental. And pride is arrogant. Look with me at verse 1. Pride is selfish, destructive, and it has destructive desires. He says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You do not ask Excuse me, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. That's a destructive desire. Those selfish desires cause us to war not only within ourselves, but with everyone around us. Every fight, every problem that arises within two people or even in yourself comes from an internal desire to have and be in charge for yourself. It's destructive desires. I read a little portion of a book. I'd like to share it with you. It's titled, How to Be Miserable. It says... Think about yourself. Talk about yourself. Use I as often as possible. Mirror yourself continually in the opinions of others. Listen greedily to what people have to say about you. Expect to be appreciated. Be suspicious. Be jealous and envious. Be sensitive to slights. Never forgive criticism. Trust nobody but yourself. Insist on consideration and respect. Demand agreement with your own views on everything. Sulk if people are not grateful to you and the favors that you show them. Never forget a service that you've rendered to someone. Shirk your duties if you can and do little as possible for anyone else. That describes the heart and the miserable life of a person who is centered upon themselves. A selfish person is at war with everyone around them. They're in constant competition for the center of the universe. Because you know it's either going to be you or it's going to be God. And as far as your life is concerned and how you control or I control our thoughts, it's either going to be us or it's going to be God in the center of our universe. Okay, 
Pride is selfish. It has destructive desires. Look at verse 4 of this chapter. Pride is hostile to God. We have destructive theology. Theology being our view of God. Adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? The word there, enmity, means mutual hatred. Friendship with the world... And belief about God, thinking I can be friends with the world, I can follow their world system, I can do what the people in the world do. Hey, there's no big difference. That is a false theology. It is a destructive view of who God is. If you think, and you and I think, that we can be friends with this world system in the way that it constantly rebels against God, you and I are setting ourselves up as mutual enemies of the living God. You say, wait wait a minute, Dave. I never meant to do that. I know. But that is the cause, and that is what pride does. It causes us to be hostile against the living God. When our hearts are filled with pride, we naturally are drawn to the world and its intrinsic rebellion against God. It's all about me. It's all about us. But now I have to make a statement here. Warring against God, I think is at the height of stupidity and the lowest of mankind's efforts. If you or I find ourselves in a position where we're warring against God, buddy, sister, we've blown it. You've completely lost it. Are you kidding me? You're going to war against the living God? Well, yeah, yeah, but God just won't give me my way. Hey, wake up. He's God. Think about it just for a little bit. Really, think about it. Are you going to win in a war with God? I love Job's response to this. If he asked me a thousand questions, I couldn't answer one of them right. How am I going to bring an accusation against God? Okay, it's selfish. Pride is selfish. It's destructive in desires. It's hostile toward God. Look with me at verse 11. Skip down to verse 11. And we see that pride is judgmental of others. Literally, pride is judgmental of everything. And it's destructive in its words. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, are you not a doer of the law, but a judge? There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Now I know some of you are thinking, finally, we have a sermon on people being judgmental. I'm so sick of people being judgmental. Well, wait a minute. Hang on. This is not talking about the simple mandate from God to discern between good and evil and what is right and wrong. You and I always have to do that. Every day we we are called by God to discern that which is good and evil, which is right and wrong, which is that good and acceptable will of God. This is our duty. This is what God calls us to do. And to make those decisions is a godly thing because you're constantly asking the question, what is pleasing to the Lord? What is sinful? And you're constantly pleasing God in your processes as you think. That's a good judgment. The judgment that is spoken of here being judgmental is a censorious judgment that takes a person's whole life and judges them completely. It's pride that causes ourselves to lift up who we are by destroying those around us. Now, we're not going to go there yet, but you'll notice in a few minutes over in verse 7 of this chapter... You see in your translation the word devil. In fact, we're going to talk about resisting the devil in just a minute. But it's interesting, the word here for devil is diabolos. And you think, oh yes, diabolical. But this is the word that's used and typically translated all through the New Testament for the devil. And you know what the word means? Slanderer. Slanderer. 
When you find yourself or I find myself in the position of judging believers and people around us and when lifting ourselves up in the process and say, well, I don't, how could she do such a thing? I don't know. Come over here. We need to have prayer. I just have to share something with you that's on my heart. Have you heard? Or maybe you're so bold and brazen at this point, you don't even care. You just get on your cell phone and start pointing the finger and telling people off. I don't know. But that kind of judgment, folks, you got to realize who has the name and the nickname that none of us want. The devil. We always think of the devil as some guy with a pitchfork, a red suit. I mean, that guy comes to my house every Halloween. He's never scared me. Not even once. But he's known as the accuser of the brethren. He constantly goes before God and accuses the brethren of things in our lives. But to be a slanderer, diabolos, to be that judgmental, destructive with our words. My friends, we have entered into a new camp. We've entered into the camp of Satan himself exhibiting the very characteristics and nature of one who is in absolute rebellion and who does not love God. All right. Finally, we see in this chapter in verse 13, pride is arrogant and it has a distorted view. Verse 13 says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such a such and such a city and spend a year there and buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now... You boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Pride causes us to have a distorted view of the future. And this is what I mean by the future. The next five minutes. The future for us is one breath beyond the one that we're taking right now. Because I don't know if you know this, but human beings, man, they have a tendency to get hurt a lot. And a lot of them die every day. I mean, I hear ambulances go back and forth and we hear of tragedies where thousands of people have died and there's diseases that are constantly attacking our bodies and we're very frail. But yet, pride causes us to think, well, (laughs) I've enjoyed a certain life thus far. So I'm going to begin to make plans into the future and I'm going to do this, that, and the other thing. It's like the parable that Jesus told of the man who sold everything, put it into barns and built bigger barns and said, look at all that I have. And he said, you fool, tonight I'm going to require your soul of you. Why did you do that? Now, it's okay to plan ahead. I mean, who knows? We might live to be 100. Then I'll be really in trouble. I'm planning for about 75. I don't know. It's just kind of a round number I got in my head. Kind of look at your family history, the good, the bad, you know, probably somewhere in there. But in reality, I don't know from moment to moment where I'm going to be. And so there should be a recognition in my words and in my heart that says, if the Lord wills. Because anything beyond that really comes to arrogance. Now, you may be thinking, well, I really wasn't arrogant when I was planning for my vacation. Hey, I understand. But he's driving home a point. This is a result of pride. Okay, remember that line in the sand that God drew in verse 6? We said there were two things that we learned in this passage. The first was that God resists the proud. But notice the second thing in verse 6. It says that He gives grace to the humble. I love what D.L. Moody said about the humble. He said, God sends no one away empty except those who are full of themselves. You got that? It was that pretty, you got that? God sends no one away empty except those who are full of themselves. Humility is something that's hard to attain, but yet in relation to God, it is easier to attain recognizing our own frailty 
and our own sinfulness. Okay, he resists the proud. He makes war against them. But notice what he does for the humble. It says that he gives grace or extends grace to the humble. The word grace, as probably many of you know, is a word, charis. And it simply means favor or kindness that is shown without regard to the worth or the merit of the one who receives it. And all in spite of all that that person deserves. It, th- this, is, this is simply what it means. We, we use the phrase a lot, unmerited favor. But here's the idea. God, in His amazing power and ability and His great character and authority and all that He is, for some reason, chose to bestow His love on people like us. It has nothing to do with how good you are, how nice you are, how much you smile toward God or pray or the style of prayers or what language you pray in. It doesn't matter. What really matters is the very fact that He chose you, He chose me, and His grace has been handed out toward us. Now, there's an interesting characteristic of those who He gave His love to, and that is... His favor is given toward individuals who are humble. Not because they are humble, but they naturally are humble. And here's what I mean. If you understand your own sinfulness, and God has been able to convict you in your spirit of all the problems that you have and your nature, and you realize, man, I'm really messed up. The humble understand and know with great gladness and gladly receive the forgiveness of God because we know how rotten we are and what we don't deserve, right? I mean, do you really understand that? But here's what the prideful do. The proud reject the grace that is given to them because they see it as weakness. Have you ever noticed that? Well, why do you want to go to church? Why do you want to be a religious person? Everyone knows that being religious is a crutch. It's for weak people. And we all stand up and say, Amen. It's for weak people. It's for people like me. For some reason, by the grace of God, I understand my weakness. And I gladly, humbly receive His grace into my life. Why? Because I need it. I don't have enough goodness within myself to please God or to make my life right. It's all because of Him and everything that He's done. And that's the attitude of a real humble person. All right. Look with me at verse 7. Verse 7 through verse 10, we journey down what I call a road to recovery. And there are 10... Ten things that we will see in this passage. Ten commandment. In fact, you could say it's God's top ten ways to cure an unhealthy heart. Now, this isn't the ten commandments that you find back in the book of Exodus. But there are ten commandments here in Greek. And this is what I mean by that. The Greek has what is called an imperative mood. And a mood basically expresses the relationship of an action to reality from the speaker's point of view. This imperative mood is is a mood that usually is a command or an entreaty, and it's a mood of the volition or will. This is this is what it's saying. That every one of these verbs that is used here is not only a command. He's telling, what I want you to do is do this and resist this and follow this. But as a part of that, it is calling upon the will and the volition of each one of us to hear and do what the Lord says. In a sense, there is a calling to do this in the future. There was a problem going on in this church. In fact, there's been a lot of a lot of uh, debate back and forth. Was he speaking here to believers or was he speaking to non-believers? And there's two or three different camps of belief in here. I believe that he was speaking to believers who had somehow lost their way. 
And the reason that I know that is I can read it in the papers. I can listen to the folks who are in my office. I can hear the discussions in my own mind to know that as long as we are in this flesh, we struggle with sin. Would you say amen to that? Now, we've conquered eternally with Jesus Christ. We have a home in heaven because of his work. But it seems like every day, it's like the devil, the slanderer, has some special made little point where he wants to throw a fiery dart into your life to injure you, to discourage you, or cause you to stumble. We, we, we have problems with it. But here's the road to recovery. Verse 7 says, Submit, therefore, to God... Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The first word here in these ten commandments or this top ten list, notice in verse 7, is the word submit. It is the Greek word hupotasso. And it's a military term once again that means get into your proper rank. Stop being rebellious. Stop doing things your way and fall into line and get into your proper rank. Now, you may be thinking for a minute, okay, great. You're a preacher. You go through all of the stuff you find out in the Greek. Okay, this was written by James, blah, 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 whatever. Hey, look, these words, you, you, sh- you and I right now should clear our minds completely of anything else that you have going on. If, you're thinking, if your stomach's hungry and it's starting to rumble, so that people next to you hear it, just scoot over just a little bit. <laughs> if your mind's thinking of all the things that you have to do tomorrow, let me entreat you right now. Stop thinking about it. And let's receive this as a group from the Lord as it was written by the Holy Spirit, as it was impressed upon James' life by the Holy Spirit, not only for him and the hearers who came after, but us as well. Let's receive this tonight from the Lord. Okay, let's hear this from him. Submit yourselves or get into proper rank right now as a believer. Number one, commandment from the Lord. Number two, resist. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The word here for resist means to stand against or to oppose. Remember Jesus in the wilderness? Remember the devil came to him and tempted him and he tempted him and he had his tailor-made temptations for Jesus in the wilderness. And at the end of the final temptation, I love the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 verse 10. He says, then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, the angels came And ministered to him. Not only are we called to submit to God as the first and proper act, but we're called to resist the devil. So we know that he's coming around. We know where he's going to come from, which friends that he's going to use, or which programs on television, or whatever your temptation may be, or your weakness. But the command comes, not a suggestion, but the command comes loud and clear to us as believers resist him. Don't let him do it. Resist him. Keep away from him. And he will flee from you. He is not omnipresent. He doesn't have the ability to send, well, I'm going to send a portion of my spirit to talk to this person, this person, and I'm just going to, you know, tempt everyone in the whole world. No. He's a created being. And temptation is for a time, and then it moves on. Resist and he will flee. Third command we see in verse 8. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Drawing near simply speaks of intimacy. There's nothing so intimate as you get close to someone. Now, with my kids, I love the whispers. I love the little kisses. I love my wife. I love the staying close to one another and talking to each other. And, and she doesn't like talking to me early in the morning. Before the brushing, you know. But, but you know, the idea is that of drawing near and coming close. It's an act of humility as you get closer to the other person. You get to know them better. You drop a lot of your defenses and you expose yourself 
to intimacy and relationship, drawing near to God. We see this in the life of Moses as he spoke with God face to face. We see it in the life of David as he writes throughout the Psalms of all of his love and worship and how he has loved the Lord. And we see it in the life of the disciples walking daily closely with the Lord Jesus. Fourthly, he tells us to cleanse. Here's the command to cleanse. Cleansing here is a word called katharizo, and it speaks of a ritual cleansing. All throughout the Old Testament, uh, you would have this ritual cleansing because nothing that defiles should enter into the house of the Lord or when one comes to offer an offering to the Lord because there's a recognition that your hands touch the world and the world has lots of defilement. But by the time we get to the time of of Paul in Timothy, he talks about lifting up holy hands and he uses it in connection to a moral condition, the condition of the hearts. Now, I mentioned before that there's a debate as to whether this was written to to, uh, Christians or non-believers. It is based upon this verse. Notice it says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. The word there for sinner is hamartoloi, which is its plural for sinner. And it is the word that is typically used for those who are always in rebellion against God and have never come to him. But as we've mentioned before, the believer has the capacity to act like a non-believer. And you know each one of us has experienced that. And he's calling out to that person, be it you or to me tonight, to say, cleanse your hands, purify your heart before the Lord. Do it now in relation to him. Okay, the fifth, to purify, agnizo. And this is a call to our our motives, and to question and to analyze the way that we think. He says, purify your hearts, in verse 8, you double-minded. The word there for double-minded is double-souled. And it's used only by James in the New Testament. And this is a person spoken of who lacks integrity. Purify yourself or analyze yourself and see where your heart is. Are you or am I a double-minded person tonight who's unstable in all their ways? A person who lacks integrity in that publicly I may call out to God, I may come to church, but privately I'm rotting on the inside. Analyze, purify. Look at verse 9. There are three in connection to each other here. He says, lament, mourn, and weep. The word for lament here simply means to be miserable. The word here for mourn means to be sorrowful, and weep means to sob uncontrollably, to cry. And here's the picture that we have. The picture that we have here is a person who is so concerned about their sin. And so concerned about what it's caused in the Lord's life and the sacrifice that he's made. That there is a soberness and a seriousness that comes over that person's life. Look at the ninth command here. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. As if to say, all joking aside, it's time to get serious with God completely. You know, I taught up in Española this weekend. What a great church. They have a Calvary Chapel up there. And there was a fellow who gave a devotion at the beginning of the service. His name was Chesco. What a great guy. He's going to be coming to our men's retreat. I'll introduce you to him, those men who come. But he was talking about the sacrifice that the Lord made for us. And he said, you know... I really understood this when I thought back to the time when I was seven years old, when my mom called me into the room to come look at my father. And he said, uh, when I walked into the room, I was scared. I was actually horrified because my dad's face was really disfigured. He had been in an accident at his work. He'd worked with cement and a wall had broken and had come over and crushed a portion of his face. And some of the rebar had stuck through portions of his body and tore his arms and disfigured him. And he said, 
I was scared when I looked at him. But then I began to cry because I thought, that was my dad. Look what he had done for us, how he had sacrificed for us all that he had done. And when I looked upon his wounds and I saw what he had done, I was so grateful and thankful. And there is the idea. There is this this sense in us as believers that we can't go on through life just casually looking at sin and saying, oh, well, I'm just human. I'm only human, born to make mistakes. I'm only human. You know, who can, we're not supposed to judge each other. I know God forgives me. Hey, wait a minute. You and I were bought with a price. And if there's something not right in our lives tonight, the the command comes from heaven, from the Holy Spirit, from the Lord himself. To be miserable, broken in spirit, to mourn, to weep, to cry out. Let all your joy and frivolity be turned into mourning because there's something rotten in your heart. There's something that's not right. Pride has gotten a hold of our lives. All right. The 10th commandment here is to be humble. Look with me at verse 10. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. Literally, the word here for humble means to get low. So this is what we say. Okay, Lord, here I am. No pretensions, no faking, just the truth. I love what Philip Brooks said about this. He said, the true way to be humble is not to stoop until you're smaller than yourself, but to stand at your real height against some higher nature that will show you what the real smallness of your greatness is. Humility before God is real openness. Peering, opening up the, the truth, peering into the, to the portions of your heart that stink, that you don't want to talk about. And getting real with God and saying, God, I am hurt. I've got problems. I've sinned against you. I'm harboring thoughts. I'm prideful. I want to do things my way. In fact, I know and love you, but I've been in rebellion. If I really look at my heart, Lord, that's real humility. There's good news for the humble. He says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. He resists the proud He gives grace to the humble and he will lift you up. Remember the story in Isaiah 6? Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, he said, I saw the Lord sitting high on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his glory filled the temple. It was a beautiful vision. Above him stood the seraphim, each one with six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. One cried to another, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the doors were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, this is, this is the picture that's given to us. He says in a command, humble yourself before the Lord. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and in the presence of God. Being truthful about all that is really in you and me. And here's the good news. He will lift us up. Here's the idea. Someone is broken and hurt and down. And the picture is someone pulling them up and and giving them a new life. This is what happened with Isaiah. Verse 6 says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand a live coal, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is purged. If you're willing to be truthful to God about who you really are, He's going to lift you up. If you fall on your face, the first face that you'll see 
And the first hand that you'll feel on your shoulder is the Lord Jesus Christ. Raising you up to walk again. His mercies are renewed every morning. His love for you is vast, deep, abiding. He says he'll never leave us nor forsake us. And friends, there's no reason to pretend with God. Here's a humble life. Andrew Murray gives us a beautiful description. I hope we can attain to it. We'll close with this. Humility is perfect quietness of heart. It is for me to have no trouble, never to be fretted or vexed or irritated or sore or disappointed. It is to be or to expect nothing, to wonder at nothing that is done to me, to feel nothing done against me. It is to be at rest when nobody praises me and when I am blamed or I'm despised. It is to have a blessed home in the Lord where I can go in and shut the door and kneel to my Father in secret and be at peace as in a deep sea of calmness when all around me there is trouble. It is the fruit of the Lord Jesus Christ's redemptive work on Calvary's cross manifest in those of who own His own who are definitely subject to the Holy Spirit. Listen, I hope God's working in your heart right now. Because you know what? I, I, I look at the news and I watch Christians being picked off one by one and I don't want to make you paranoid. But a good dose of reality will not hurt any one of us. Let he who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. You're either humbled or you humble yourself. So tonight, we're going to sing a song in a minute. And as we sing this, I just urge you to be honest with God. Don't worry about anything else. If you need to ask forgiveness of your sins, ask Him. Kneel right where you are and ask Him for forgiveness. And after the service, we're going to have pastors and other people and people around you who will gladly pray with you so that we leave, we, we take nothing with us beyond this point, but we leave it all here tonight. Father, we thank you for your words, for this time, for this great fellowship. Very poignant and convicting words from James tonight, Lord. But we know they come from your heart. Command to your church. To your people. Oh Lord, humble our hearts. Keep us safe. Keep us next to you. We want to glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.